0: Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I've got a question to start this lesson. For any of you who have read the Chronicles of Narnia, or the the Lord of the Rings series, or seen Star Wars. And the question is this. When did it first dawn on you that there's a lot more to these stories than meets the eye? When did it hit you that there is a message and meaning far deeper than the surface level of the story? For example, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when you, re- when you read about Aslan the lion being killed in an act of self-sacrifice to take the place of the person that was guilty of betrayal and dying and yet coming back stronger than ever, I mean, did, did you kind of stop there and go, wait a minute, this feels familiar. This sounds a lot like the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, wait a minute. Is... Aslan, the, the Jesus of Narnia, and then poosh, mind explodes. It's like, I got to go back and restart this and, and see really what I'm reading. This is an epic Christian allegory. Or reading Lord of the Rings, and you, you meet Gandalf, who is willing to face death and hell themselves in order to free the fellowship to continue their quest. He will descend through hell, basically, and yet somehow come out the other side. And no longer as Gandalf the Grey, but as Gandalf the White with more power than he'd ever had? Something's going on here. In the in the Star Wars movies, it's like, wait a minute, the force is faith? And Yoda is Spencer W. Kimball? What the okay, but seriously. When does it hit you that symbol is pointing to deeper, greater reality? than than some kind of surface level understanding. Because it's that kind of eye-opening, soul-expanding experience that we need to have today with the help of Nephi. I'm just afraid it's too late for us because we already know too much. Last week when we studied Lehi's dream and we probably yawned a bit and said, oh, I already know this stuff. I was raised on these stories, most of us. I already know that the tree of life represents God's love and the word of God is, the or the iron rod is the word of God. See, it rhymes. We have a song about that. I already know that the great and spacious building is the pride of the world and the mists of darkness are the temptations of the devil. And we forget that Lehi never said any of that. He told the story of his dream and left it at that with kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like I hope you boys know there's more to this than I let on. And Nephi knows that. Nephi wants to know, oh, wow, I think Okay, those that have eyes to see, let them see. I want to see it. Those that have ears to hear, let them hear. I want to have those ears. I want to know everything that dad saw, and I want to know what it means, because dad didn't say it. And Nephi's going to have an experience of a lifetime coming to know what dad didn't teach him. But here's the problem. Here's the irony. We end up settling for the explanation Laman and Lemuel got instead of treasuring the explanation that Nephi received. And I would hope that our spiritual sensitivity is at a higher level than Laman and Lemuel's. I hope we have eyes and ears attuned more to spiritual things the way, the way Nephi did. So why would we settle for a lesser lesson? See, here's the irony. As far as we typically explain it, and the way Laman and Lemuel learned it, it's this element from the vision means this object in real life. Tree means love, and rod means word, and so forth. But the way Lehi learned it from the Lord, excuse me, the way Nephi learned it from the Lord, it wasn't this symbol is, is an object, it's this symbol is an event. There's, there's a, a story that Dad told, but it's history that I'm going to show you. Well, history for us, it was prophecy for him, but it, Nephi gets this panoramic vision. Of the centuries yet to come and as he sees it unfold he starts to make sense of the various elements of his father's dream it's amazing once you once you catch it chapter 11 for example Nephi is shown New Testament history in chapter 12 the Book of Mormon unfolds in chapter 13 he sees the apostasy and the restoration in 14 he sees the last days it's almost a mini version of the book of Revelation like we studied last month to the point that by the end Nephi will hand the baton to John the Revelator and say, you can keep writing from here. And he, and he does. I mean, it's mind-blowing. It's, it's all that those centuries, millennia of human history and he's seeing it play out before him with elements of his father's dream almost materializing before his eyes as he watches the history unfold. He sees the birth of Jesus And it's as if a plant sprouts and grows into a mighty tree bearing the most incredible fruit imaginable. He sees Christ go forth and perform a mortal ministry. And it's as if an iron rod begins to extend out from the tree into the wider world, beckoning people to come and partake. He sees the apostasy unfold. And in the process, the great and spacious building is constructed before his eyes, brick by brick. Do you understand what I'm describing here? The vision is historical because Lehi's dream was meant to be. In fact, here's, this is a mind-blowing one. In some ways, Nephi's visions in 11 through 14 are a way to interweave Lehi's dream in chapter 8 and his explanation of history in chapter 10. Remember, Lehi talked about two trees, not just one. Tree of life was chapter 8. Olive tree was chapter 10. And the olive tree was symbolic of the house of Israel that would have branches broken off, scattered, and then only later grafted back in. He saw that in terms of prophecy. 600 years from now, give or take, a Messiah will come for the Jews. In fact, more than Messiah, he will be Savior and Redeemer of the world but he'll be rejected, slain, but rise again. His gospel will then be taken to the Gentiles and it's the Gentiles that will bring it back to the house of Israel. So, Lehi's second tree was history. His first tree was story. And in Nephi's approach to it all, the two become one as he sees elements of chapter 8 appear along the timeline of chapter 10. It's, it's wild, okay? So let's dive in and see it. Now, to do it, we need to start at the end of chapter 10. I purposely skipped the last few verses of chapter 10 last week because I knew they'd be better prelude to this week's material than capstone to last week's material. And it is a lesson on epistemology that's one of the best I've ever seen. Epistemology simply means the study of knowledge. How do we know what we think we know? Or how do I seek knowledge in various areas of life? And when it comes to epistemology, there's usually three parts. One is what we want. Like, what do you want to know? Number two, what do you believe? Like, how do you believe, what do you believe to be the best way to attain that knowledge? Okay. So my beliefs are in pursuit of a particular piece of information. And my beliefs are also informing number three, which is my behaviors. Because if I believe the best way to gain the knowledge I want is a certain approach, then I'm going to take that approach, right? My beliefs will determine my behavior. Now, look for all three of those elements in what Nephi is going to tell us here. First Nephi 10:17 came to pass after I, Nephi, having heard all the words of my father concerning the things which he saw in a vision, that was chapter 8, and also the things which he spake by the power of the Holy Ghost, there's chapter 10, which power he received by faith on the Son of God, and the Son of God was the Messiah who should come, that he learned in chapter 10 also, I, Nephi, was desirous also that I might see and hear and know. Of these things, So that's his desire. That's what he wants. I want to know what dad knows. I want to see what he saw, hear what he heard. And if that's what he wants, how's he going to get there? Well, here's his belief. I can learn those things by the power of the Holy Ghost, which is the gift of God. It's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. But God can give us that gift of understanding. And he does it unto all those who diligently seek him as well in times of old as in the time that he should manifest himself unto the children of men. So that's what he believes about God, and it's going to propel him to do what is necessary, namely, to diligently seek. What does he know about God? God is a God of revelation. He's a God of vision. He's a God of prophecy. Most importantly, he's a God of self-disclosure. He wants us to come to know him. So we can come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and be saved, right? Fullness of Nephi's intent. I have to know that this is the kind of being who wants to reveal to me. He won't upbraid. He'll give liberally. So just come if you lack wisdom. And that's Nephi to a T. In fact, he testifies of it in verse 19, that he that diligently seeketh, that's what we got to do, shall find. That's what I believe. And the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto them by the power of the Holy Ghost. And I love that word unfolded. We're used to seeing maps on our phones. But if you remember the maps that we used to have in the glove compartment, boy, you had to unfold those for a while. And flip the top up and fold the bottom down or unfold the bottom. And then accordion style, open this thing till it practically filled the car. I could never refold them and fit them back into the glove compartment again. But that seems to be the best way to describe the line upon line precept upon uh, precept unfolding of truth that God gives us be patient have faith the answers will come Nephi believed that so he says in chapter 11 what's he going to do based on that belief verse 1 it came to pass after I had desired to know the things that my father had seen there's what he wants and believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me so there's his belief what did he do as I sat pondering in mine heart, and I don't think we do that enough. I think we want God to just download the information and let us get it in a moment of time. But no, we've got to think harder. We've got to marvel and meditate and muse like Joseph Smith did. We've got to go cast ourselves upon our bed overcome by the Spirit like Lehi did back in chapter 1. We've got to ponder. But as Nephi did that, he was caught away in the Spirit of the Lord, yea, into an exceedingly high mountain. And I love that the place of revelation for him was the mountain of the Lord. There's a great place to learn the things of God, right? You've ascended above the cares of the world. You're closer to heaven than you used to be. You have a view and vision like nothing before. you climb a mountaintop. The view's breathtaking, believe me. And that exceedingly high mountain, he said, was one that he had never before seen, upon which he never had before set his foot. And that makes sense, too. If you want to see things you've never seen, you might need to do things you've never done. That's part of religious epistemology also. Okay. Now, with that in mind, the conversation unfolds. The lesson begins. And the teacher for this lesson is none other than the spirit of the Lord himself. Namely, the third member of the Godhead. That's amazing to me. Uh, in fact it's going to kind of blow Nephi away later on when he's like wait a minute it looked like a man who spoke and and talked to me but that was the Holy Ghost that was the Spirit of, of God that's amazing and notice how the Spirit conducts this lesson the Spirit said unto me behold what desirest thou remember epistemology starts with what do you want to know and for Nephi he said I desire to behold the things which my father saw now Fine, good enough. The Spirit has a follow-up question, though. Believest thou that thy father saw the tree of which he hath spoken? So what you want isn't enough. I need to know what you believe. What's the model here? Do you believe what your father said? And if I said, yea, thou knowest that I believe all the words of my father. And that is the key that unlocks the door of revelation. In fact, the Holy Ghost is stoked about this. The Spirit rejoices like hallelujah. You get it. And because you believe, I can reveal. You see, think about what the alternative would have been. Do you believe what your father said? Eh, No, he was probably just, I don't know, went to bed hungry, and so he had a dream about fruit. Uh, Think about how Laman and Lemuel would have approached it. He's just a visionary man, and the foolish imaginations of his heart, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't believe that came as a message from God. I don't believe God reveals himself. Well, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy. For Nephi, though, Lord, I believe. Help thou my lack of understanding. I'm not seeking confirmation here that visions are possible. I believe they are. I believe my father had one. I just don't understand what he meant by that. About a thousand years ago, there was a, a, a Christian theologian named Anselm who coined the term in Latin Fides Quarins Intellectum, which means faith, seeking, understanding. It's like I already have, the order is key. I already have the faith. I believe. I just don't understand everything. But with that belief in place, I know God can help me come to an understanding. He will reveal the truth. And that's that's a true principle. That faith precedes the miracle. And Nephi has the faith. So here comes the miracle. That you don't receive a witness, or in this case, an explanation, until after the trial of your faith. And your faith has been proven If you come with a default of doubt saying, nah, God doesn't reveal, then do you really think he's going to reveal to you otherwise? Take the leap of faith as Nephi does. And so no wonder the spirit is thrilled that you've already come ready to receive. I even love the horizontal and vertical dimensions here. You trust horizontally in the words of your father, lowercase f. As a result, you're now prepared vertically to receive revelation from your capital F, Father, in heaven. You trust each other, and now you're ready to learn from God. And so the revelation comes. But notice this in verse 8 through 10. It came to pass that the Spirit said unto me, Look, and I looked and beheld a tree. And it was like unto the tree which my Father had seen. And the beauty thereof was far beyond, yea, exceeding of all beauty. And the whiteness thereof did exceed the whiteness of the driven snow. And yes, it snows in Jerusalem on occasion. So Nephi would know what he's talking about. Well, after he'd seen the tree, he said to the spirit, I behold, thou hast shown unto me the tree, which is precious above all. And right then, the class could have been dismissed. Right then, the lesson could be over because he, well, he got what he came for, right? What, you, what desire is that? Oh, I want to see what my father saw. Well, here it is. Oh, that's the tree? Okay, great. Class dismissed. Thank you. Remember in the previous chapter, what did he want? I want to see and hear and know of these things for myself. Well, you've seen. And now you know. But in that moment, the Spirit takes his own leap of faith and asks Nephi another question. It sounds like he's just repeating himself, but this is completely different than the first one. The Spirit says to him, what Desirest thou? And I get a sense that he's asking, do you want to continue the lesson? Or are we done here? Have you had enough? Did you get what you came for? Really the question is, is that all that you came for? The limits of your epistemology? Is it just seeing and hearing so that you can know? Or are there other ways of knowing? So what do you really want, Nephi? I picture the spirit right there holding his breath, like, please don't be done with the lesson. And please figure out the right verb here. Because it's not just see, it's not just know. It's taste. It's experience. Do what your dad did. As soon as he saw the tree, he beelined straight for it so he could eat it. What did he say when he was beckoning and calling with a loud voice? Come and partake of this for yourself. Your father, Nephi, was experiential in his epistemology. He just wanted to see what it tasted like. So what do you want? And it's there that Nephi responds in verse 11. Well, to know the interpretation thereof. And then he gets totally sidetracked with the fact that he's talking to the Holy Ghost. It says, for I spake unto him as a man speaketh, for I beheld that he was in the form of a man, yet nevertheless I knew it was the Spirit of the Lord. He spake unto me as a man speaketh with another. It's like, wow. And right then the Spirit says, look. And as soon as he looks, the Spirit leaves. He's gone. And finds like, well, huh? What, 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 what am I supposed to be looking at? And to me, there's something profound going on here. In fact, for this, I owe a debt of gratitude to Rosalind Welch, who is an incredible scriptorian and scholar. She works for the Neil Maxwell Institute of Religious Scholarship at BYU. And she wrestled with this passage because it struck her, why would the Spirit leave right then? Because by the time the conversation continues, it's an angel leading the lesson, no longer the Holy Ghost. Something about Nephi's response seems to have sent the spirit away. He didn't completely end class, but the teacher left and sent a substitute teacher instead. What's going on there? And the way Rosalind described it, I absolutely love, because it has to do with different epistemological models. If Lehi's model was an experiential one, You've got to participate in this and partake of it and taste it. There's something amazing about taste. I used to ask my return missionary students if they served in foreign places, especially like tropical places, did you ever eat fruit you'd never seen in an American supermarket? And they're like, oh, yeah, it was amazing. Like, what's it called? And they'd say some word I'd never heard before. And then I'd ask, what's it taste like? And no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't convey it in a way that the rest of us could understand. That's the beauty of taste. Taste is different. It... It's internal. It's experiential. Even particles of light don't enter. They just bounce off the eye. Even sound waves don't enter. They just bounce off the, the eardrum. But food, tasting it, it you internalize it. You, you have to experience it for yourself. It's amazing. And that's Lehi's epistemology. So you can, ho- you can picture Lehi saying to Nephi, son, don't just ask Cerebral questions. Experience the taste of this fruit. Eat it. And you can picture the spirit hoping for the same thing. And so when it's like, okay, now you've seen it, you know it's there. What do you want now? To understand what it signifies. And you picture the spirit like face palming, like, seriously? That's it? You want exegesis instead of experience? You want, you want to understand, but not to internalize? Well, oh, any old angel can do that. i got plenty of old historians waiting around the spirit world. Any one of those can come and walk you through it. I'm out. <laughs> and the spirit leaves. And the angel comes. It's interesting because there, there's another book uh, about the Book of Mormon that I love from Grant Hardy called Understanding the Book of Mormon. It's amazing. And in the, the end, at the end of it, he talks about the final father-son combination. Here we're meeting the first father-son, Lehi-Nephi. At the end, you meet another, Mormon-Moroni. And Grant Hardy points out those two had a different epistemological model too. And when you take what Rosalind Wells taught and what Grant Hardy taught and put them together, it's like, whoa, the bookends of the Book of Mormon are trying to help us see how am I supposed to know if this comes from God? Because from Mormon's perspective, how are they going to know the Book of Mormon's true? And he's like, oh, well, they're going to know their history because they're living in the moment of its prophecy, those prophecies fulfilled. And so if they just study the history and see all these prophecies and check, 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 they've all come to pass. Of course it's true. Of course it comes from God. And Moroni's like, Dad, man, I hate to break it to you, but nobody cares about history as much as you do. You're like a historian. That's what you do. You've spent your whole life pouring over these plates. Most people in the latter days aren't going to care. I mean, there's a history channel, but who watches it? Uh, How are they going to know the Book of Mormon's true? They've got to experience it. They'll ponder its message of a God of tender mercies. They'll ponder how merciful the Lord has been to them through their whole lives. And they'll pray about it. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, they can know the truth of all things. Dad, they're going to eat the fruit and they'll know. It's interesting because Mormon seems to be more like Nephi. Moroni seems to be more like Lehi. And which one will we be most like? Well, the choice is up to us. There's nothing wrong with wanting to see and hear in order to know. But if we're doing it at the expense or the exclusion of partaking then we're missing something it was interesting at divinity school to study religion in a non-religious way because that's all that the scientific study of religion can do you kind of have to bracket out god because you don't have any instruments big enough to weigh or measure the infinite and so you bracket out spiritual experience and you study Religion as if it were a purely human phenomenon. And talk about sucking the life out of the exact thing you're trying to study. It's like a cardiologist that will study everything except the human heart. Right? It's like, really? That's how they study religion out there? Yep. it's all they got. And until we are willing to participate in it. I mean, how, heaven forbid that we have to involve God in our search for God. Right? to have the kinds of spiritual experiences that, that change us from within. That's what eating does. You are what you eat. So eat this fruit. Okay, Nephi? Nephi has settled for something less. And so the angel comes as substitute teacher and says, I'm going to do what practically anybody can do since you didn't want the one thing that only the Holy Ghost can give you. Again, I'm not trying to throw Nephi under the bus. But I am trying to see for ourselves, how does this story apply? What approach am I taking to learn the things of God? Please eat the fruit. Now, in this case, when you go to verse 13, the, the, it's almost funny. And I don't want to be irreverent here. But when the Spirit's like, oh, that's all you want? An interpretation? Okay, look. And as soon as Nephi turns his head, the Spirit's like, I'm out of here. It's like he created a diversion and I'm taken off so I can send a substitute. Nephi comes back and is like, oh, what, 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 where'd he go? What am I seeing? And in verse 13, he sees a virgin and she was exceedingly fair and white. And notice those were the same words used to describe the tree. Something about its beauty, something about its whiteness. And so this virgin and the tree are kind of one and the same in this angelic explanation. The angel then asks Nephi, what do you see? And he responds, a virgin, most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. And there's some superlatives there, just like was used, was used before about the tree. There's actually some interesting historical context going on if you think about the time period, 600 BC, where that Nephi lives. Because if you take counterfeit truth, That's an oxymoron. You take counterfeit religion, namely that of the Canaanites. And they have a weather god named Baal. And then they have a a goddess of kind of earthly fertility known as Asherah. And Asherah is a tree. That's why the Old Testament talks about the Canaanites going off and worshiping among the groves. Think about Elijah and the priests of Baal and the priests of Asherah. And he's trying to put them all in their proper place. Yeah, to show them the God of Israel is the only real one there. Because these are just counterfeits. Well, if Baal is the counterfeit Jehovah, can you picture the groves as a counterfeit tree of life? You see, it's the male and female among the Canaanite deities. Well, we do know of the feminine divine as well. Now here it's talking about Mary. And we don't worship Mary. That's not what we're saying. But to see Mary as a tree of life, I mean, if you think about it, she's going to bring forth the Son of God as the fruit of her womb. Huh? Are you seeing fruit that is holier than the tree that bore it, that is whiter and more desirable? The tree is not what you're after. The fruit is, but it's the tree that produces the fruit. And so when he sees this virgin and things are starting maybe to make it, Actually, I don't think they're making sense yet. I think Nephi is probably still confused. Like what? I was asking about the tree, and now you're showing me a woman. What's going on? And then, if that's not weird enough, the angel's next question seems to be totally out of left field. Verse 16, the angel asks, "Knowest thou the condescension of God?" And you picture poor Nephi like, what? This class just went crazy because I was talking about tree. I saw it. Things were making sense so far, and then once I asked to know what it was about. What the interpretation was? The tree leaves, the spirit's gone, and I see this woman, and now you're asking me about condo, condo whatchen? What, what, what is that word? You can tell he doesn't quite understand it because he admits in the next verse, I know that he loveth his children, nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. So, yeah, I'm a little confused about the whole condescension thing. In fact, I'm really confused why you would ask me that in the middle of this lesson about, that I thought was about a tree and now seems to be about a woman. I'm lost. Now there, the angel could say, oh, Nephi, you're smarter than you realize. I thought you said you didn't understand condescension. Well, I, I didn't. Well, you just explained it pretty well. I know that he loveth his children. Well, there's condescension for you. I mean, let's get more technical for a moment. Condescend. Con, uh, you Spanish speakers. Con, what's it mean? With. Uh, you English speakers. What's descend mean? Come down. So to condescend means to come down with us. To be like us. It's what Jesus was willing to do. He was the word made flesh. Oh, incarnation is the ultimate act of condescension. Or how about another word? How about compassion? You Portuguese speakers, what's com? With. And passion, you Latin speakers. uh, Passion means feeling and suffering. So compassion is to suffer with someone Just to be there. How about empathy? M is within. Pathy is the suffering and the the feeling. And so what's the condescension of Christ? It's what allows him to have compassion and empathy for all of us. Because he came and wrapped our injured flesh around him. He came to be like us so he'd understand us. So he could be at one with us and therefore thereby make us at one with God. That's the beauty of it all. And so, do you understand condescension, Nephi? I know he loves us. That's it. Stop right there. That's what you need to hold on to. The word was made flesh. And what was that word? I love you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He allowed him to be born in the flesh. He allowed him to become the fruit of the womb of this precious and chosen vessel, Mary. Are you starting to see what I'm describing here? I've done this with students sometimes in the past where I'll say, you ever played Pictionary? They're like, oh yeah. If I gave you the slip and you were supposed to, you know, the word on the slip of paper and said, go draw this. If the word was condescension, how would you depict that? And they're like, uh, pass? What's the next word? Like, nope, can't pass on this one. How would you illustrate, depict the condescension of Christ? Because the angel is actually going to do it twice. one to help us underst- help Nephi understand the tree, and once to help us understand the rod. And they're both historical events that are unfolding before Nephi's view. It's amazing. This first one, he shows he's, just, he's already shown Nephi the woman, and then the woman kind of fades off into, into the distance. But then she comes back, but she's different the second time. The second time Nephi sees her holding a baby. And it dawns on him who this baby is. You want to draw condescension? Draw Christmas. Act out the nativity play. And in this scene of mother and baby at the manger, that is the condescension of Christ that he would come down to that lowly level. A manger of all places. The bread of life in a place where the animals come to feed. Do you see what this is? Verse 18, Behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh came to pass that I beheld that she was carried away in the spirit after she'd been carried away in the spirit for the space of a time the angel spake unto me saying look and I looked and beheld the virgin again bearing a child in her arms and the angel said unto me behold the lamb of God yea even the son of the eternal father now do you get it knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father saw and Nephi did he said yea it is the love of God which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men. Wherefore, it is the most desirable above all things. And that's a good answer, but I don't know if it was good enough for the angel. Definitely wouldn't have been good enough for the spirit. Because the angel offers one more word of eh, confirmation, but also, in my mind, clarification and correction. Because when Nephi thinks he's finally got it, it's like, ah, the tree is the love of God. The fruit, oh, that was good. Uh, And I see that, okay, Christmas is condescension and God is going to send his son. I can't imagine a greater act of love. No wonder that's the focal point of dad's dream. No wonder that's what he's coming toward. No wonder that's where the path leads, where the rod leads. No wonder it's the most desirable above all things. That's what we're supposed to want. That's the destination. Like whenever somebody teaches me some new game to play, my first question is always, how do you win? What's the goal here? And Nephi understands that's the goal, most desirable of all other things. But then notice the angel's response. He's like, well, well, yeah, 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 that's true. That's true. Yay. And the most joyous to the soul. And I think there's a difference there. It's one thing to recognize what is most desirable. But it's another thing to recognize why it's so desirable. And if this is just a logical recognition on Nephi's part, like, oh, we're supposed to come unto Christ because that's what you do. That's obedience. That's what the law is trying to explain to us. And the angel's like, no. Well, yeah, but that's nothing compared to the... I'll put it this way, Nephi. The love of God is not what you're supposed to want. It's what you can't help but want once you've experienced it. Oh yeah, you still haven't eaten the fruit, have you? Your dad understood it so much better. Nephi, if you'll come and partake, you'll know why it's so desirable. You'll know why everyone ought to desire this for themselves and why you ought to share it with everyone you possibly can because it changes you experiencing the love of God leaves you different than you've ever been there's no denying that there's no second guessing that it's the greatest epistemological model imaginable and it's one that only God through the Holy Spirit can convey Joy to the soul. Joy to the world. There's a Christmas song for you. There's a condescension song for you. I bet that's the soundtrack of this part of the vision. It's Christmas after all, right? Well, it's at that moment then that the angel says, look, which is his, Nephi's cue that we're ready for the next round of the lesson. He says in verse 24, look, and I looked, good obedient Nephi as always, and I beheld the Son of God going forth among the children of men. And I saw many fall down at his feet and worship him. And it came to pass that I beheld that the rod of iron which my father had seen was the Word of God. Now, he talks more about the rod here and how it connects to the tree and what the tree represents. And it's not just tree, but it's also fountain and it's all love of God. There's some amazing stuff that you can wrestle with and ponder on your own. But What's amazing to me, again, is each element of his father's dream is coming into existence through the process of time, through history. Jesus is born, and in seeing Christmas, the tree sprouts and spreads forth its branches and offers its magnificent life-changing fruit. But then Jesus, this fruit, grows up and goes forth It's as if the tree itself is extending outward. It's almost like a branch of the tree becomes the iron rod. It stretches out from the tree into the world around it in hopes that people will come and lay hold of the teachings of Jesus Christ that he's given them. You understand this? It's amazing. There's so much that you can wrestle with when it comes to the word of God and the iron rod that is meant to embody it most of us immediately think of a guardrail, some kind of banister. That's usually how it's depicted in, in pictures and so on. Hand or hand the rod along, right, as we sing. And, and that's a great mental image that Joseph Smith would have understood intuitively when he's translating. Uh, there's something powerful about thinking of a guardrail that if I'm, if I'm tempted to leave the path, I mean, I'm lost in the midst of darkness, after all. And I keep hearing the beckoning calls of those in the Great and Spacious Building. At least I hear their mocking jeers. And if I start to move in their direction, not even knowing I've left the path because of the darkness, it's kind of nice to be bumping up against something that reminds me something's going wrong. I love something Elder Packer used to teach, that we'll never leave the path without first overruling a warning That's powerful. And that warning comes from our feelings when we're starting to veer off and we bump up against the Word of God. A a truth we've been taught, something the prophets have conveyed, something the Scriptures make clear, and it's, oh, no, I don't, I'm going in the wrong direction. And thank heaven that guardrail was there. Thank heaven it's something I can hold to when I'm being pulled away. Oh, hopefully not swept downstream by the currents of a wicked culture, in a filthy river of water. But that's not the only possibility. And just last year, or I guess it was two years ago, 2022, there was an article in BYU Studies written by a biologist of all people. Uh, but he knows more than than just life. Uh, he knows some spiritual life and. It was an article about an alternative interpretation of the iron rod. Still the word of God. But what did he mean by iron rod? Because in Nephi's day, they didn't make banisters out of iron. Uh, What could this rod have been? And according to this article, which blew me away, he described it as, Isaiah, for example, often talked about a rod in the hands of a king, like their royal scepter. That rod is a symbol of authority. And if this is the word of God, there you go, iron rod. Think about the promise to those who overcome in the book of Revelation. They will rule the nations with a rod of iron. There's their scepter of rule. And because it's iron, it can never break. Ooh, this is king of kings, lord of lords, eternal son of God. But then he also pointed out that that rod could also represent a shepherd's staff. Now, a shepherd's staff is mostly, most likely made of wood, and wood can break. But imagine if the good shepherd had a rod of iron that he is so invested in saving every lost lamb that you cannot break the means whereby he will guide you back home when it says that the rod extended out from the tree, picture the good shepherd leaving Bethlehem and going forth to gather his wandering sheep. Just lay hold of it. Come and see. And I will personally guide you home. No matter where you are on the path or even off the path, this rod of iron, unbreakable covenant commitment to you, I can shepherd you home in order to feel the love of God. I imagine it could be both, and other elements as well. That's the beauty of symbolism, layer after layer. But especially from an ancient Near Eastern context. Knowing Isaiah as Nephi did, oh, if Lehi is seeing something along those lines, oh, it's more than just banister. (laughs) When I was a kid, I was playing tag in recess and I was running so fast to get away from it. And then people were like coming out of, uh, kind of walking around the, the playground and one, somebody walked right in front of me and I was about to run them over. So I just turned as quickly, I, I didn't have time to look, just react. And I turned right into a metal pole that held up the roof over the sidewalk. And I mean, it's still probably echoing somewhere in West Texas right now, uh, where we were living at the time. And and I blacked out, and the next thing I knew, I woke up in the principal's office with an ice pack on my head. I mean, forehead, full speed, right into the iron rod. Now, how's that for overruling a warning? (laughs) How's that for having something jolt you into the realization I was veering off? Actually, when I woke up and realized what had happened, I turned to my side, and my best friend was right there with an ice pack on his hand. And I'm like, what happened to you? And he said, I happened to be standing right next to the pole. And when you turn into it, I, didn't, I just reacted and I stuck my hand up to try to save you. And you like crushed my hand between your forehead and the pole. And I like, I love you, man. Thank you for doing that for me. Sorry. Well, that's one way to see it. And I don't want to run headlong into that iron rod that is so firm, unbending, immovable, unforgiving. That's how I felt that day. But also to see it as a as an extension of God's love, a branch of the tree of life. Maybe there's even fruit growing from the iron rod because this loving good shepherd is just trying to help us come home. Think about that. Just add it to your spiritual repertoire as one more possibility. Uh, It's a beautiful one. And then the angel says, you ready for round two of condescension? I already showed you one Pictionary depiction. Let me show you another one. And this time, it's verse 26 and 27. Look and behold the condescension of God. And this time when he looks, he sees John the Baptist. Well, he doesn't know his name yet. But sees the one who would come to baptize the Lamb of God. That was something that Lehi saw back in chapter 10. So now Nephi is seeing it here in 11, but in conjunction with the iron rod. Because if Jesus' ministry is to go forth, John the Baptist's ministry is one and the same. Christ will minister to the people. He will come to John and be baptized by him. And we're still like, wait, wait, that's condescension? I actually love teaching this at baptismal services. I used to conduct those for the primary kids in our ward. And I would let them know about the condescension of Christ with two rounds of Pictionary. The kids know about Christmas, but do they really appreciate baptism as a way to follow the example of Jesus when Jesus did it in some ways to follow our example of baptism? Think about that. How does baptism depict condescension? Christ is coming down, descending, to be with us in an act of washing away sin that Jesus didn't need. Nephi himself will repeat that in 2 Nephi 31. Jesus was holy. He didn't need to have sins washed away, but we did. But the fact he was willing to come down to that lowly level. In fact, he got baptized in the lowest body of fresh water on the entire planet. The Jordan River is beneath sea level. So yeah, he descended to do something that sinners are supposed to do. He could have easily said, oh, that is beneath me but no, he descended beneath all things, including our level of sinfulness that requires a covenant cleansing. Okay, And again, this is part of the rod. It's Jesus going forth to show us how to live. I'm not just going to condescend and stand here rooted in the center of the scene, hoping you come. No, I'm going to go out and find you in the highways and byways. I'm going to gather every lost lamb. I'm going to shepherd you home. I'm going to go beneath you and lift you up. I'll be baptized just like you must be, even though there's no sins to wash away from my soul. I love these scenes. It's it's so powerful how it's all depicted. And now that we've learned about the tree and learned about the rod, there's one more thing we're going to learn about in chapter 11 before the scene changes. Because part of this ministry Nephi sees John the Baptist, but he also sees 12 other apostles. Dad had seen that in chapter 10 also. And so now you have the apostles of the Lamb that I mean this rod is getting stronger and stronger and going further and further, places that Jesus isn't going to go during his mortal ministry, but the apostles will go and they're sending iron rods everywhere. They're gathering an unbreakable shepherd's staff and going to try to gather Israel home to the covenant. But notice how the chapter ends. Verse 34. After he, the Messiah, was slain, I saw the multitudes of the earth that they were gathered together to fight against the apostles of the Lamb. And that's a theme we'll see through the rest of Nephi's visions. For thus were the twelve called by the angel of the Lord. Apostles. The multitude of the earth was gathered together and I beheld that they were in a large and spacious building like unto the building which my father saw. You get it? You see what's happening here? This is the apostasy unfolding. They crucified Christ. Now they're fighting against the apostles. Christianity is lucky to survive in any form. But amidst all this opposition, it's there that Nephi starts to see the stones of the great and spacious building come together, floating there above the earth. The angel of the Lord spake unto me again, saying, Behold the world and the wisdom thereof. I'm sure he did air quotes around wisdom. Yea, behold, the house of Israel hath gathered together to fight against the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Oh, there's Gulliver's floating island in (laughs) Travels number three. There's the wicked world. There's apostasy being blown about with every wind of false doctrine by the prince of the powers of the air. Oh, that's that's what you're seeing in apostasy. And it's a fight. That's why they're pointing the finger, señalando con el dedo. That's why they're mocking and laughing, doing anything they can to pull you away from the tree or the rod or anything that moves you in the direction of God's love. It's a fight. And it's a fight, not just against God, but against the Lord's apostles. Now, if we keep it in ancient context, then it's easy to see that, yes, the house of Israel, thinking that Jesus was a false Messiah and that his apostles were, therefore, apostates to the true faith of Israel, of course, they're going to fight against the apostles of the Lamb. The house of Israel will fight. This is Judaism against Christianity, and that describes a lot of the early church history. Uh, Fighting in both directions, problems on both sides. But I also wonder if this can still apply in the modern church. And are there still members of the House of Israel, church members, who are fighting against the apostles of the Lamb, thinking we know better than they do, Uh, recognizing their fallibility and assuming that it applies across the board Equating fallibility with fallenness. Thinking that because there's some humanity there, there must be no divinity there. And they're just a board of directors like any other social organization would have. Oh, I, I think we need to rethink some things. And ponder hard about how the Lord feels about his chosen servants that they are part of the iron rod as it's being extended out to lengthen the ministry of Jesus wherever he's sending servants to find lost sheep. I pray that we will never be caught fighting against the apostles of the Lamb, especially if we claim to be part of the house of Israel. That's where chapter 11 ends. That's where New Testament history ends. And then the scene shifts and Nephi is brought into Book of Mormon history. I'll have to do chapter 12 very, very quickly. Uh, but I think it lends itself to a quick uh, water ski over it. Okay? I'll explain it this way because we've seen the tree and the rod and, now the, and we've seen the, the building. But what another important element was the mists of darkness? Where's that come in? We haven't seen that depicted in history yet. And so in chapter 12, when we shift from Old World to New World, and we go from New Testament history to Book of Mormon history, what ends up happening is Nephi sees all kinds of wars and contentions among his posterity. I mean, he'd seen wars, well, fighting between the Jews and the Christians, right? And now he's seen wars and contentions among his own people. And here, verse 4, to manifest that or to depict it, he sees a mist of darkness on the face of the land of promise. I mean, no wonder we can't see the tree because contention blinds us to love no wonder we can't see the rod because anger and hatred blinds us to truth no wonder we can't see the river of filthy water because that kind of anger can blind us to consequences of our sins as well no wonder Jesus says the contentions of the devil I don't like mists of darkness but then notice what happens next it's really fascinating from a literary perspective this is absolutely ingenious because he's seen a mist of darkness and now we're seeing, okay, that's part of dad's dream. Uh, symbolically, now we know what it is historically, the the wars and rumors of wars and and hatred and contention and strife. But then in verse five, it came to pass after I saw these things, as in the mist of darkness, I saw the vapor of darkness that it passed from off the face of the earth. Now, when did the mists turn into a vapor? it seems kind of the same thing, but by changing the language, notice what Nephi is able to do. It's ingenious. We went from mist of darkness, clearly father's dream, to vapor of darkness. And where do we see that in Book of Mormon history? Well, as soon as it passes off the face of the earth, behold, I saw multitudes who had not fallen because of the great and terrible judgments of the Lord. And I saw the heavens open and the Lamb of God descending out of heaven and he came down and showed himself unto them. Wow, picture the mists of darkness, Nephite-Lamanite wars, leading to vapors of darkness, the destruction of the wicked in 3 Nephi chapter 8, all of the natural disasters that took place at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ back in Jerusalem. And what happens after chapter 8? Well, in chapter 11, Jesus comes among the posterity of Nephi. It's, there's something amazing going on here. We are seeing the coming of Christ. In some ways, it also is a beautiful pre-enactment of the last days when wars and rumors of wars, as one of the signs of the times of the last days, will eventually lead to Armageddon, which is our version of 3 Nephi 8, preparing the way for the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is our version of 3 Nephi 11 again, the mists of darkness will turn into a vapor that is suffocating us in hatred of one another and hatred of self. Hatred of God. It's hatred in every direction. But that darkness will be dispelled by the coming of the light of the world. That's what Nephi is seeing here. It's glorious. He also sees, it's almost like the the tree is transplanted to the new world. God is showing his love by sending his son to this part of the world as well. Other sheep. Not of the Israelite fold, uh, or the ancient Near Eastern fold, I should say. And then he extends the rod there as well, a, a ministry among the Nephites. He calls 12 disciples so that they can continue extending the iron rod infinitely in the direction of those that need it. So it's interesting in chapter 11, he sees the Lord and his apostles. In 12, he sees the Lord and his Nephite disciples. Either way, to have prophets, seers, and revelators... To have earthly mouthpieces is absolutely essential. But there's fighting there too. You see, in verse 10, describing these 12 Nephite disciples, he says, Behold, they are righteous forever. For because of their faith in the Lamb of God, their garments are made white in his blood. And if they're made white, well, they must not have been white all along. If they needed the blood of Christ, they must have had some stains from their own blood on those garments. Yes, they're not perfect but they are being perfected in Christ. And I feel the same about modern apostles and prophets as well. That God's divinity is shining through these men's humanity. And it's amazing to see the combination of the two. Well, the cha- this chapter comes to its close in language like 16 through 18. Behold the fountain of filthy water which thy father saw. And there's the counterfeit of the fountain of living water that Nephi saw alongside the tree. Yea, even the river of which he spoke and the depths thereof are the depths of hell and the mists of darkness, let me clarify this for you, are the temptations of the devil, which blindeth the eyes and hardeneth the hearts of the children of men and leadeth them away into broad roads that they perish and are lost. And the large and spacious building which thy father saw is vain imaginations and the pride of the children of men. So there we get a quick review of all the adversary's pieces in this cosmic chess match. We've seen the river of filthy water. We've seen the great and spacious building. We've seen the mist of darkness. And all of those things are trying to choke out any view we might have of God's love and God's loving ministry to bring us his word. There, verse 19 then, we get the worst news for Nephi. Again, this is the end of Book of Mormon history. Because of the pride of my seed and the temptations of the devil, I beheld that the seed of my brethren did overpower the people of my seed. The Lamanites are going to annihilate the Nephites. And Nephi sees it. How's that for a preview of coming destructions? That would be absolutely devastating. Devastating to the founding father of the Nephite nation. I'm I'm struck though. I'd never noticed this before. Where does he point the finger of blame? Oh, Laman and Lemuel, it's all your fault and your posterity is going to destroy my posterity. No, part of it is because of the temptations of the devil, but specifically he mentions the pride of my seed. He looks inward. It's a Lord is it I experience and it's, It's the pride cycle that will lead my posterity down to destruction. I'm going to have to teach as best I can humility and faith in the Lord if I ever hope to avoid that awful end. Well, that chapter ends and chapter 13 begins with history proceeding breakneck speed. This is a long chapter and I'm going to have to water ski over much of it, but to point out what you ought to look for This is the chapter where Nephi is seeing apostasy and restoration. We finished New Testament history. We finished Book of Mormon history. We're now at a point where we are going to see the age of apostasy that leads to the time of refreshing, to borrow Peter's language. Start in verse 5 and 6, and you'll see the most important element of this time period. Behold the formation of a church which is most abominable above all other churches, which slayeth the saints of God, yea, and tortureth them, and bindeth them down, and yoketh them with a yoke of iron, and bringeth them down into captivity. And it came to pass that I beheld this great and abominable church, and I saw the devil that he was the founder of it. Now, great and abominable church is meant to be an echo in our ears of great and spacious building. And it's a counterfeit church. It's a false tree. It is coaxing people toward the river of filthy water. But please don't think of church so narrowly to picture some strictly religious organization and then label it. Oh, I know what church is talking about. Because it is far more broad than just that. Think about church metaphorically as any organization of people, any institution, any ideology, any sets of, of beliefs and behaviors that moves people away from the love of God. It's this, one of the things that's interesting about this is both ne- Lehi's dream and Nephi's visions are examples of apocalyptic literature. I read, wrote an article about this years ago, and it's fascinating to see the elements of apocalypticism uh, and whether it's a vertical trip to heaven that's kind of what Lehi gets in chapter 8 or a horizontal move through history that's what Nephi is showing us here either way apocalyptic literature like we studied in the book of Revelation last last year is full of stark dualism that there's no middle ground it's choose you this day whom you will serve because you got to pick a master and no one can serve both of them but you will serve one Okay. How long halt you between two opinions? There's Elijah for you. It's, there's no spiritual Switzerland here. Pick a side and dive in the trenches because the bullets are flying. And we're seeing this fight between good and evil, between right and wrong. Like we studied in Revelation, it's between the beast and the lamb. It's between the merchant city and the, and the new Jerusalem. It's between the mother of harlots and the bride of Christ. And here we are seeing a church fight against another church. And there's only two possibilities out there. We will see that crystal clear later on. If you notice verse 8 and 9, what's this church after? He says, Behold the gold and the silver and the silks and the scarlets and the fine twined linen and the precious clothing. Ooh, that sounds like the mother of harlots we met last year. Speaking of harlots, they're, there, they're here too. And the harlots... They are the desires of this great and abominable church. Oh, one more thing. Also for the praise of the world do they destroy the saints of God and bring them down into captivity. That's why they're floating above the earth. The praise of the world. They're they're so full of themselves. Yeah, that's why they float. It's full of hot air over there. This, in some ways, is the combination of all the evil elements of Babylon we saw in the book of Revelation. And also an echo of the three temptations that Jesus faced and overcame in the wilderness. Lusts of the flesh. That's the first one. Change stones to bread. Or there's the, the mother of harlots that we saw in Revelation. Well here it's, it's the harlots that are right there. That's what this church so-called is after. How about the second one? Uh, leap from the temple. Show that you're the son of God. Everyone will come running praising. Oh that's just a play to pride. There's there's the beasts of Revelation. And here, there's the praise of the world. And then thirdly, worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. There's the merchant city of Babylon. Here, it's the gold and the silver and the fine twined linen and everything else. It's, Satan is creative in terms of tweaking these three, but it's always the same three. And that's what this church, quote unquote, is seeking. So we see that in political realms. We see that in economic aspects. We see that in ideological perspectives. That church is alive and well. And it has been ever since, well, ever since the beginning of all of this. The Great and Spacious Building has been floating there. Eternally in some ways. Well, the rest the chapter then proceeds through a lot of apostasy history. As we barrel toward the Restoration. And I'm not going to go verse by verse here, but you will see Columbus here, for example. He's not mentioned by name, but it's a Gentile separated from the seed of, the, of Nephi's family. And he's moved upon by the Spirit of God and ends up coming. Now, some people have a big problem with that because they're like, Oh, Columbus had the Spirit of God working on him. Please don't make things so black and white that we're back to an old Disney movie. Be a little more Shakespearean with flawed heroes and sympathetic villains and people aren't all saint or all sinner. We all seem to be a a conglomeration of the two. Uh, Columbus made some mistakes, obviously. And the colonization of native populations is a horrific story. It's interesting the way it's described in this chapter, though, to see God's hand in some of what was done in terms of bringing the Gentiles to the new world. Uh, I'm not saying that Columbus was inspired in every single thing he ever did and in every single attitude he ever espoused, that's going too far. It's like quoting the Doctrine and Covenants and saying the Constitution is inspired of God and say, oh, does that include the three fifths clause, uh, compromise? No. Parts of it were pu- of purely human make. But be- despite the fact there's human fingerprints on the Constitution, there's all kinds of divine fingerprints on it as well. And same with people like Christopher Columbus. Same with people like the Pilgrims and Puritans, because they're hinted at in chapter 13 as well. As you read, just have an eye to U.S. history, for example, and what led to creating in the United States a cradle for the Restoration, where there would be religious freedom sufficient for a church to come onto the scene to push back against the church that was floating there on the other side of the river. okay. And again, by church, I'm not meaning some kind of religious organization solely. There's plenty of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that unfortunately have dual citizenship in the Church of the Devil too. It's just which direction are you moving in? Toward God or away from Him? Toward the love of God or the pride of the world? Take your pick. And so as you look at this, I I would suggest, well, maybe I'll put it this way briefly. There's a difference between patriotism and nationalism. And I would suggest that patriotism is a beautiful thing and nationalism can quickly turn into an ugly thing. And for us to prove the contraries there, there's one there. And to stay in the Goldilocks zone where we can sing My country, tis of thee, of thee I sing. We can can profess that America is a beautiful place, because it is. Land of the free, home home of the brave. Cradle of the restoration. Only place where that restoration could have taken root for a tree to grow all over again. But we can also sing, God mend thine every flaw. Because Columbus had some, and... The Pilgrims and Puritans had some. And the Founding Fathers had some. And the United States to this day has more than some. Okay? I, I, I love the United States of America. I am grateful for its prophetic past, or it's inspired past and its prophetic destiny. But I am also a firm believer in children of God the world over and that they are all all alike unto God. Keep things in balance as you read chapter 13 and see the Revolutionary War, for example, portrayed. That's a fascinating one. It lets us know that the only hope that the colonists had in taking on the greatest army and navy on the planet at the time was to trust in the power of God. And sure enough, it was the power of God that won the American Revolution. You see that in verse 18 and 19. But then in verse 21, you see something that will be all important for the rest of this chapter. And in some ways, the rest of the Book of Mormon. Nephi is shown a book. And in verse 21, the angel asks him, knowest thou the meaning of the book? The angel is trying to draw Nephi's attention and our attention to this all important element. There's something about this book that's going to carry us through the rest of this vision and the rest of human history and the rest of salvation history. This book is going to play the starring role throughout the rest of this chapter. Verse 23, the book that thou beholdest is a record of the Jews, which contains the covenants of the Lord, which he hath made unto the house of Israel. And it also containeth many of the prophecies of the holy prophets. And it is a record like unto the engravings, which are upon the plates of brass, save they are not so many. So what we have seen in the Bible is actually smaller than what, we had, what they had on the brass plates, even though the brass plates covered less history. It makes me really wish we had the brass plates. I'd love to have some extra books here. Well, nevertheless, they contain the covenants of the Lord. I just want to reiterate that. I know I mentioned it before, but that's the focal point. Which he hath made unto the house of Israel, wherefore they are of great worth unto the Gentiles. Now that last line seems a little confusing because you're like, wait, wait, wait it's all about house of Israel, house of Israel and the covenants God has made with his chosen people no wonder it's so important to the Gentiles you're like, wait, wait, what? important to the Gentiles, but they're not in the house of Israel they're outside the house why is this book going to be a blessing to them? and here's the irony the Bible is the book that Nephi has seen in vision, and it's the book that is going to draw some people to cross the, the, the many waters and come to this new land it's the book they'll carry with them. It's the book that they're going to go and spread forth. And it's this book they're going to bring to the posterity of, of Nephi and Laman and Lemuel once they're here. The Bible played such a pivotal role in American history. It still does. And what's interesting there is it's described first and foremost as a record of the Jews. Meant to remind the house of Israel of the covenants God has made with them, huh? One of the interesting things in our day is we picture the Bible primarily to be a Christian book. I mean, we do give the Old Testament to the house of Israel. We we sometimes allow it to be called the Hebrew Bible. But even the fact that we call it the Old Testament seems to suggest a certain degree of supersessionism on our part as Christians to say, well, it's the New Testament that really matters. And even if we keep the Old Testament attached, it's kind of as a relic or as a preview or just a collection of pre-Christian prophecies about Christianity. That's all it's for. Whereas the way Nephi sees it, and can you blame him? He's part of the house of Israel. He's living during this Hebrew Bible time. He sees that book and goes, whoa, that looks familiar. That looks like the brass plates, just a condensed version. And it's essential for us to carry the brass plates with us through our journey. I bet it's equally essential for them to have the same kind of stuff. You think? But the focal point here is in its covenant collection. That the Bible is meant to be a reminder to the house of Israel that they have not been cast off Forever. Where does that language come from? Title page of the Book of Mormon? Ooh, that's one of the Book of Mormon's chief focal points as well. One of its central purposes. It's to remind the house of Israel that they're still the covenant people of the Lord. Is does the Bible do that too? Go reread Isaiah. Go reread Genesis. Go read, go reread the Hebrew Bible, and you'll see why the Bible is so Hebrew. In fact, who wrote the New Testament? Hebrews. Peter, James, John, they're all Jews. Paul, Jew, even though he's starting to write to Gentiles. Ooh, maybe that's where this book becomes of great worth to the Gentiles. The Gentiles finally get a chance to kind of eavesdrop into the covenant conversations between God and his chosen people, Israel. And the Bible allows us to peek into Jewish covenant history and see that God has promised to gather scattered Israel home. God has not given up on his covenant, nor on his covenant people. The Bible teaches us that. But then notice what happens. In verse 24, The angel said that that book contained the fullness of the gospel of the Lord when it was first written. And that when it first went forth, it came forth in purity unto the Gentiles. That's verse 25. But then when it passed through the hands of the great and abominable church, all that changed. Verse 26, for behold, they have taken away from the gospel of the lamb many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. Now, by now, it's been so long since we've been in Lehi's dream that we forget that that's still what Nephi's learning about. So if we're thinking about books and writings and word going forth, we're still supposed to be thinking iron rod. And wait a minute, plain and precious parts have been removed, have been lost from the book. Can you picture Satan under cover of darkness, sneaking over to the rod with a a hacksaw and trying to cut out whole sections of the iron rod? So as we're going along hand by hand, we Wait, 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 what's going on? It gave out. It just stopped here. And I'm not anywhere, I'm not close, I'm not at the tree yet. I know that much. Can you imagine your means of direction giving up on you? And what's supposed to point you toward the love of God is missing some of the plain and precious parts that prove it? Wow. In some ways, if we go back to the other depiction of a shepherd's rod you picture in some ways the adversary either trying to wrest it out of the hands of the good shepherd or perhaps more accurately suggest that that shepherd isn't so good after all and that that rod is in the hands of an angry God ready to beat senseless any sinner that happens to stray. Oh, think about that in terms of how the Bible has been interpreted. Especially since the Reformation, with the angry God of Calvinism wielding the Bible as a club to beat people into submission before a God that they fear. As opposed to the merciful Messiah, the Book of Mormon is trying to depict a God of tender mercies who is simply trying to give you the power of deliverance if you have faith in Him. Do you understand? In some ways, the Book of Mormon's reminder from the title page is that God still loves you. That the covenants are still there. Think about all the great things God has done for your fathers. You're not cast off forever. And the Bible is meant to do the same thing. But unfortunately, sometimes people read the Old Testament and picture an angry, vengeful God. And that's a misreading They think the New Testament corrects all that, and so they kind of jettison the Old Testament, thinking that that's been... Oh, Jesus came to destroy that law when he said himself he didn't. Sadly, I think the Old Testament has been reduced to a book of rules. The law becomes the law of Moses, and that's all been overcome by Jesus Christ, the first Christian, when in reality he was the God of Israel and the Messiah, King of the Jews come to tell them that that suffering servant Isaiah prophesied is here as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief to heal you by my stripes and to forgive you through my own crucifixion. You understand what the Bible is supposed to do because of its covenant framework? That's why covenant is so important in the verses that we just read. And if we're talking about plain and precious parts, because this is interesting. Sometimes we, we picture the loss of plain and precious parts like a, like whole chapters were removed and pieces of the Bible are gone. And, and so we're just waiting for something like the Joseph Smith Translation to restore it all. Now, there are places where that does happen. But miraculously, the Bible is incredibly well-preserved when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and we have an earlier manuscript than anything we'd had before, we realized, wow, they did a good job of, of copying and pasting, or in they, their case, just copying. Uh, it's, I wouldn't say that big chunks of, of iron rod have been removed, but rather the way we view the iron rod in the first place, that's what's been changed instead of plain and precious parts being content, think of plain and precious parts being approach and perspective. Because if you stop reading the Bible through a covenant lens, and sadly through the Reformation, the talk of covenant started to mean more like, well, there was a covenant of works through Moses, and then that was jettisoned so that we could have a covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. So faith overworks. This covenant overcame that covenant. And that's an incorrect understanding of covenant. That's a loss of a plain and precious approach to the Bible, which is based on the covenant God made in premortality to send a savior so that we could all come home. The covenant he made with Abraham, that's the most important one in the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant is the promise God made to the Father of the faithful, saying, In thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So in my, among my covenant people, I am going to choose, this is exclusivistic, I know it sounds that way, forgive me, but just stay with me, I'm going to choose a covenant people, the house of Israel. I'm going to pick them, and I know that sounds oh, unfair to the rest, but Keep reading. Because the exclusivity of a chosen people turns into the radical inclusivity of bringing everyone into the same kind of covenant relationship with God. That's why I'm choosing this people to go bless every family on earth. Okay? It's exclusivity in pursuit of radical inclusivity. And so if we read the Old Testament through that lens that God chooses a covenant people in order for those chosen people to go out and choose everyone else to bring them into the covenant as well, that changes everything we see in the Old Testament as well as the New. No wonder that's good news for the Gentiles because it's the only hope the Gentiles ever have to come into the covenant. No, Again, no wonder it's of such great worth unto the Gentiles. This is your entrance. This is how you can come in. All the families of the earth, that includes you, come into the covenant. That's why we're extending it. That's why we're opening it, offering it to you. I hope this makes sense. Because what ends up happening from here is he continues to see apostasy as we move toward restoration. And he sees the house of Israel being scattered by the Gentiles when it was the Gentiles that were supposed to be gathering them. You were supposed to be our partners and instead you became our persecutors. How could you let that happen? How, why, how, could the, how could Christians ever become anti-Semitic? That's one way to say it. How could Europeans ever become such monsters when they colonialized the Western Hemisphere? How could, how could Gentiles treat the house of Israel in such a horrific way when it was thanks to the house of Israel that the Gentiles got their hands on this book anyway. The book of the Jews, not the book of the Christians. You understand? It's fascinating. But what ends up happening then is in God's plan, God's not going to give up on either party. Not going to give up on the house of Israel. Not going to give up on the Gentiles. This book is going to keep wrestling, working with all of them. So in verse 34 of chapter 13, he says, Behold, saith the Lamb of God, after I have visited the remnant of the house of Israel, and this remnant of whom I speak is the seed of thy father. So you're going to have, Lehi's still going to have posterity. The Nephites are wiped out, but the Lamanites are still there, and they're a remnant that will remain. Wherefore, after I have visited them in judgment, and smitten them by the hand of the Gentiles, And after the Gentiles do stumble exceedingly because of the most plain and precious parts of the gospel of the Lamb, which have been kept back by that abominable church, which is the mother of harlots, saith the Lord. So yeah, Jews and Gentiles are in the same sinking ship at this point. Well, when all of that happens, here's the Lord's promise, his covenant. Since it's a covenant framework, we've got to approach everything in. I will be merciful unto the Gentiles in that day insomuch that I will bring forth unto them in mine own power much of my gospel, which shall be plain and precious, saith the Lord. You see, God's going to begin turning things around. And he's going to start with the Gentiles by giving them something that will contain his gospel, that will restore plain and precious parts. And since a covenant framework was lost in terms of a lens through which to see the Bible. That was one book. Maybe we need another book to clarify how the first book should have been read all along. So, verse 35 and 36, Behold, saith the Lamb, I will manifest myself unto thy seed, that they shall write many things, which I shall minister unto them. And remember, thy seed for Nephi? Oh, there's going to be a Nephite record? Yeah, let's call it the Book of Mormon, shall we? It shall be plain and precious, which is exactly what was missing from the other book. After thy seed shall be destroyed and dwindle in unbelief, and also the seed of thy brethren, behold, these things, these plain and precious things, these writings from your posterity, shall be hid up to come forth unto the Gentiles by the gift and power of the Lamb. That's where you see Joseph Smith appear on the scene. The three witnesses, the eight witnesses, the early church, a bunch of Gentiles, a bunch of Yankees coming together to embrace this ancient Nephite record, this ancient Israelite record, in which shall be written, my gospel, saith the Lamb, and my rock, and my salvation. In other words, the Book of Mormon is the key to this spiritual turnaround. And it's going to be a gift from a remnant of the house of Israel, To the Gentiles, which will help the Gentiles see that the only hope they have is to enter into the same covenant with the God of Israel and thereby return to the house of Israel, its scattered remnant, and help gather them back into the covenant that was always intended for them from the start. I was trying to think of analogies for this and I almost pictured... Oh, a bunch of non-Latter-day Saints living in an LDS community but kicking them around and treating them bad because they don't understand them and then the Latter-day Saints, something happens to them and they're off, picture some LDS youth that went skiing and all of a sudden they're, they're trapped under an avalanche and it's the non-Latter-day Saints that are the search and rescue team and they're like oh, it's our job, we've got to go help them and as they go and help them and find them and rescue them, on the drive home, they, they're talking about all these LDS beliefs. And by trying to save you, you ended up saving us. Because in hearing the story from these lost LDS youth, they come and gain a testimony of it all for themselves. You see, it's the Gentiles that have been kicking around the house of Israel for centuries. But once the Gentiles know who they really are and who the house of Israel really is, once they get the Plain of Precious Parts back in place and start seeing covenant history, the way that God set it up from premortality and renewed through Abraham. Wow. I'm sorry I've been kicking around the house of Israel. I'm supposed to be helping them. I'm supposed to be their partner, not their persecutor. And so... How can I help you come back home? How can I save you? And the Gentiles are now instruments in the hands of God to bring the Jews back into covenant relationship. And that's what brought the the Gentiles into covenant relationship too. I I was saved by participating in your salvation. How's that for hearts turning to each other? You with me? There's some fascinating truth here. Now, in verse 38, Nephi is still talking about the Bible, the record of the Jews. And he says, it's going to come back to the remnant of Lehi's seed. Someday you're going to have that book. And then in verse 39, after it had come forth unto them, I beheld other books, which came forth by the power of the Lamb from the Gentiles unto them. And those other books could include Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. There's so many other sources of truth that have been brought forth in this day of restoration. And notice what it's all for. Unto the convincing of the Gentiles and the remnant of the seed of my brethren, and also the Jews who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, that the records of the prophets and of the twelve apostles of the Lamb are true. I think Moroni must have pondered those words as he was writing the title page. It's all right there. The book is written for Lamanites, for Jews, for Gentiles. It's trying to convince Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ. It's trying to remind them of the covenants God has made with them, that they're not cast off forever. Great things I've done for your fathers. That's what this book is for. That's what all these books are for. And this book is meant to defend and confirm the other book. It's interesting that for those who attack the Book of Mormon from an evangelical Christian perspective, for example, and say, oh, the Book of Mormon is adding Scripture, and it's, it's false, and, and it's getting in the way of the Bible. And it, in some ways, it's like, no. The Book of Mormon would actually honor the Bible's supremacy. In terms of foundational, this is where the covenants were first written, recorded. The Book of Mormon knows its place as one that, it's one to convince people that the Bible's actually true. That the covenants actually stand. As I used to say to evangelical friends in the South, in the Bible Belt, The Book of Mormon's the best friend the Bible ever had. It confirms what the Bible's trying to teach. In fact, it clarifies biblical truth by keeping it in a covenant framework. That changes everything. Thank heaven for the Book of Mormon. The Bible should say. Then verse 40, The angel spake unto me, saying, These last records, Book of Mormon, which thou hast seen among the Gentiles, shall establish the truth of the first, that's the Bible, which are of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. In fact, previous verse, when it talked about the prophets and the apostles, well, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Record of the prophets, Old Testament. Record of the twelve apostles, New Testament. It's all meant to teach covenant. Okay, And this new testament of Jesus Christ, this other testament, is meant to confirm the original testament, the original covenant. Okay, so it establishes the truth of the first, which are of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. It shall make known the plain and precious things which have been taken away from them, and shall make known to all kindreds, tongues, and people, that the Lamb of God is the Son of the Eternal Father, and the Savior of the world, and that all men must come unto him, or they cannot be saved. There, can you hear echoes of the title page? Can you hear echoes of Nephi's thesis statement and the fullness of his intent? I'm trying to convince you that you've got to come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and be saved. How's that for Old Testament covenant language? In fact, next verse, verse 41. While you're coming, here's how. They must come according to the words which shall be established by the mouth of the Lamb. So we're coming on his terms, not on ours. We're coming according to the words he's revealed. And the words of the Lamb shall be made known in the records of thy seed, there's the Book of Mormon, as well as in the records of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, there's the Bible, wherefore they both shall be established in one, for there is one God and one shepherd over all the earth. That's what these books of Scripture are meant to convey. In some ways, shoring up the iron rod that was forged in the old world is an iron rod forged in the new. And these two overlapping, intertwining, shared testimonies of, of, the, of the Lord, shared witnesses of the covenant made between God and Abraham, that's how we'll find our way to the love of God. And whether it's a Jew coming in, a Gentile coming in, we're sending forth this iron rod in all directions in hopes of gathering out the Lord's sheep. People who will hear his voice and come running. That's the purpose of restoration. To reverse the problems of the apostasy. That's chapter 13 for you. Starring role, book. Uh, Enemy, church, great and abominable. In all its various manifestations. okay, Pulling people away from the rod versus shoring up the rod to make sure people can come. The cosmic chess match is continuing, my friends. And there you get to chapter 14. I'll have to do this in, with lightning speed. But here we see the, very, the last days. We'll meet John the Revelator by the time we're done and we'll pick up with the book of Revelation. But the way this starts, notice verse 1 and 2. And it shall come to pass that if... And this is a huge if here. If the Gentiles shall hearken unto the Lamb of God, in that day that he shall manifest himself unto them in word, and also in power, in very deed, unto the taking away of their stumbling blocks. That's a long way of saying when the Book of Mormon comes forth. When this book that's meant to shore up the plain and precious parts of the iron rod, this book that's meant to wake up the Gentiles to their role in re-establishing the covenant with Israel, If the Gentiles will listen to that and harden not their hearts against the Lamb of God, they shall be numbered among the seed of thy father. Yea, they shall be numbered among the house of Israel. They shall be a blessed people upon the promised land forever. You see, this is the Gentile opportunity to join the Lord's covenant people. Choose God and God chooses you. There's room in this family of faith for everyone. So yes, you Gentile search and rescue workers, when you come out and meet the Jews, the house of Israel, the saints that have been suffering, as you save them, their knowledge ends up saving you. And so if you'll just soften your heart, open your eyes and ears and heart, partake of the fruit, taste some of this, it will change you. Because if you don't, then nobody stands a chance. You've cut yourself off from the house of Israel and now the house of Israel has no Gentile saviors to help them come home. That's what he says in verse 6 and 7. Therefore woe be unto the Gentiles, if it so be that they harden their hearts against the Lamb of God. You get that? Woe because of all you'd be missing if you reject what God is offering you. No, the time cometh, saith the Lamb of God, that I will work a great and a marvelous work among the children of men. See, Nephi can't help but quote Isaiah here. He's a favorite prophet a work which shall be everlasting, either on the one hand or on the other, either to the convincing of them unto peace and life eternal, or unto the deliverance of them to the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds, unto their being brought down into captivity and also into destruction, both temporally and spiritually, according to the captivity of the devil of which I have spoken. There's Isaiah 29 for you. Nephi will spend a lot of time with that later on. But the restored gospel really will be a two-edged sword. It'll cut both ways. You can either accept it or reject it. But in rejecting it, you've rejected the iron rod. You've rejected a a path to the love of God. You've rejected your opportunity to play a part in the salvation of God's people. That's what this book is for. The way the angel says it in verse 8, Remember thou the covenants of the Father? unto the house of Israel. I said unto him yea, which is interesting like hey, in all this conversation, do not lose sight of the all-important concept of covenant. That's what we're looking through for throughout human history. In fact, covenant, the word, appears 4 times in chapter 13, 4 times in chapter 14, 3 times in chapter 15. That's what it's all about. And so with this reminder that it's covenant lens that we're supposed to be looking through everything, then let me remind you of something different. I don't want you to lose sight of covenant because this is not coming out of left field. Verse 10. He said unto me, Behold, there are saved two churches only. There's the stark dualism of apocalyptic literature. There's no middle ground, no spiritual Switzerland. Pick a side. That's all you got. Okay? There are two churches only. The one is the church of the Lamb of God and the other is the church of the devil. Wherefore, whoso belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God. Well, there's only one other option, so you know where you are belongeth to that great church which is the mother of abominations and she is the whore of all the earth again think of churches metaphorically any institution any ideology that moves people in one direction or the other I mean this is black and white but that's apocalypticism for you this is are you on my side or, or not this is the Lord saying if you're not for me you're against me and, and that's where we are and so if Whatever earthly allegiances you might have, whatever mortal memberships you carry, whether Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, believer, Latter-day Saint, former Latter-day Saint, whatever it might be, are you moving people toward the love of God or away from it? Are you living according to whatever light you have received? Or are you trying to engender darkness? That's all it boils down to. Moving toward God, moving away from Him. And in everything we do, we are establishing our allegiance with one church or the other. I I really hope you're understanding this because I would hate to think that Hey, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so I'm part of the Church of the Lamb. Potentially. Or, those people aren't part of my church, therefore they must, and if there's only two, they must be the Church of the Devil. Oh, there are good people moving in good directions in all kinds of different organizations. And there are those even within ours that seem to be moving away from the tree rather than towards it. So please keep this in mind. Are we on Zion's side or Babylon's? And then notice the difference between them. For most of, much of the rest of this chapter, he'll point out the differences between the two. That's where, this is where Nephi becomes most like John in the book of Revelation. Again, this is the passing lane. He's about to hand the baton over. And so when he says things like verse 11, I looked and beheld the whore of all the earth, and she sat upon many waters, and she had dominion over all the earth among all nations, kindreds, tongues, people. It's like, wow, do we even stand a chance? But keep reading. It came to pass that I beheld the church of the Lamb of God, and its numbers were few because of the wickedness and abominations of the whore who sat upon many waters. That's bad news. Nevertheless, I beheld that the church of the Lamb, who were the saints of God, were also upon all the face of the earth. And their dominions upon the face of the earth were small because of the wickedness of the great whore whom I saw. Now, that seems to start and end with bad news, but it's got some golden good news in the middle. Back in the 80s, I believe, the church was on such an exponential growth curve that even non-Latter-day Saint sociologists were shocked and amazed by this. Rodney Stark was the most famous, and he wrote things that, based on LDS growth uh, numbers, man, we, ha- we are seeing the first... We're seeing the formation of the first world religion to be established since Muhammad walked out of the desert. And he pointed out things like, you know, by the year 2020, I can't remember his numbers, but like 2050, there'll be 280 million Latter-day Saints. And so many of us at the time were like, yeah, hallelujah, take that. Forget the beleaguered minority. Oh, we're going to be a a world faith along those lines. Non-Latter-day Saints uh, scholars of religion were up in arms. Like, how dare you uh, make that kind of dire prediction? Years later, he revisited it all and said, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. Uh, It's not going to grow that way. It's growing faster. I was too conservative in my estimates. LDS church growth has gone even higher than what I first predicted. And again, everyone's like pulling out their hair. But what's sad is Latter-day Saints seem to be pulling out their hair now. As some of the growth rates have leveled off, and, and are we still kind of stuck around the 17 million member mark? And, and I guess things aren't going the way we assumed they would be. Well, who are we listening to? Rodney Stark or Nephi? Because Nephi is telling us from the get-go, yeah, we'll never be as big as everybody else. That it will always be a minority. But did you catch the good news in the middle? It will also be everywhere this other church is. Righteousness might be a minority perspective, but there will be righteous people wherever wherever people happen to be. There will I'll put it this way. Maybe this is the best analogy. There will be leaven to leaven the lump. There's not much yeast in a loaf of bread. But as long as it spreads its influence everywhere, then everywhere that influence will be felt. And that's our role as members of the covenant. As house of Israel, disciples of Jesus Christ, if you're the only one, you're not standing alone, you're standing with him. So go stand. Stand. In fact, the way he puts it in verse 14, I, Nephi, beheld the power of the Lamb of God that it descended upon the saints of the church of the Lamb and upon the covenant people of the Lord who were scattered upon all the face of the earth. There's that scattering. It's just the leaven spread out throughout the the loaf. But they were armed with righteousness, with the power of God in great glory. And that's the key to all of this. We will do what's right, though our numbers may be few, when compared to the opposite hosts in view. But an unseen power will aid me and you in the glorious cause of truth. That unseen power is the power of God in great glory. We will be armed with his righteousness, which hopefully is leading to greater righteousness of our own. But that's, what, that's, being, that's the sword of the Spirit. That's the armor of God. That's the Word and the Spirit and being ready to continue the good fight of faith. And it's a fight, all right. Nephi has seen the fighting between his posterity and the posterity of his brothers. He's seen the fighting among people in the last days, wicked against wicked throughout human history. The way he says it in verse 17, when the day cometh that the wrath of God is poured out upon the mother of harlots, which is the great and abominable church of all the earth, whose founder is the devil, then at that day, and yeah, that's the latter day, the work of the Father shall commence in preparing the way for the fulfilling of his covenants. There's that word again. Which he hath made to his people who are of the house of Israel. Chapter 14 is a rough one to read at times, but by the time you get to that verse, it's like, whoa. So we're talking the ultimate fourth quarter comeback. We're talking the ultimate underdog story. Because the Lord comes onto the scene. And in that day, when we seem to be up against so much, the father himself really starts his work. That is preparing the way to fulfill his covenants. And what did he promise in pre-mortality? To make sure all of us could come home. What did he promise to Abraham? That through your posterity, all the families of the earth can be blessed. And it's the coming forth. This is actually fascinating. When you get to Third Nephi, months from now, Jesus, in his post-mortal ministry, among the Nephites, what Nephi saw in vision back in chapter 12, he'll start quoting Old Testament. He'll quote Isaiah and Micah and it's all House of Israel language and it's covenant framework. Jesus is coming with plain and precious perspectives on the covenant he's made with his his chosen people. And he says basically the same kind of stuff that Nephi is saying here from the very beginning. The gathering of Israel and the covenant that God has made with his chosen people, is a golden thread that runs throughout the entire tapestry of the Book of Mormon, start to finish. It's one of its most important themes. That's why it was so interesting that Lehi would start with those kinds of things back in chapter 10, and it would become such an important part of what we're seeing here in Nephi's visions. It's with that promise that all will be well, that promise that when the Book of Mormon comes forth, that is evidence that it is go time as far as God is concerned. That the Father is firing things up and it's time to keep my promises. It's time to honor my word. And with that, the chapter ends because the vision ends. Talk about grand finale. Actually, there's a little bit more from this because it's just it's John taking the, road, the, the, the baton from there. It's those kinds of promises and then for the rest of the chapter, it's Nephi perhaps a little reluctantly, passing the baton to John going, oh, I want to talk about more. I want to, I glory in plainness. I'd love to spell all this out and how it's going to be. Once the father uh, starts his work and the Book of Mormon shows that it's go time, but then, uh, yeah, okay, fine. John, John's going to write all of that. And what we studied last month in the book of Revelation is supposed to be the, it's the sequel to Nephi's visions here. So you go from 1 Nephi 11, 12, 13, 14, back to Revelation 6 through 22 okay go back and review those lessons if you need to uh, and then like I said the vision ends the chapter ends but notice how Nephi says it in conclusion it's, it's almost comical verse 29 Nephi concludes and I bear record that I saw the things which my father saw and the angel of the Lord did make them known unto me which seems to be Nephi saying there oh yeah Did I forget to mention, I saw the things my father saw? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, you go back to chapter 10. What did he want? I want to see what my father saw. Chapter 11, what desirest thou? To see what my father saw. It's like, okay, is that it? You're going to be content with just a quick glimpse? I can paint the picture really quick. Or do you want more? And boy, Nephi was ready for more. And I am so grateful for it. Again, he had some work to do on his epistemological model. But when it came to his epistemological limits, he didn't have any. Keep it coming. I'm never going to ring the, end, the, the closing bell. I never want class to be dismissed. And so keep the visions rolling. And they did. And then by the end, it's like, that was amazing. Did you get what you came for? Yeah. And so much more. That's, that's the case with us, too. If we'll have a humble heart, if we will t- have righteous desires, what I want and faithful beliefs how I trust in God's way of manifesting truth then what will come oh more than I bargain for if I'll seek truth the way the Lord intends me to it's amazing with that Nephi hikes down the mountain comes to the valley and chapter 15 is the aftermath of his incredible epiphany ironically and yet so fittingly, the first people he meets when he gets to the bottom is Laman and Lemuel. Sound a little like coming home from a mission and you've left the mountaintop and now you're back with bickering brothers and not so saintly sisters and just regular people that aren't living as well as missionaries were? Again, sacred experiences tend to come to an end at some point. Not an end permanently, but it's the ups and downs, the roller coaster of life, and we don't stay on the mountaintop permanently. Up there is where we learn the gospel, but down here is where we live it. Up there is where we learn it, but down here is where we teach it. Uh, up there, we're with, we're with perfect partners in the Spirit and the angel. Down here, we're with laymen's and lemmuels sometimes. But how will we persuade them to share our vision? And that's what Nephi's after in chapter 15. As you read it, pay close attention to Laman and Lemuel's epistemology as compared to Nephi's and Lehi's. Because when when Nephi first approaches them, they're disputing about the things their father had talked about. In verse 3, he truly spake many great things unto them. That's good news. But they're so hard to be understood. That's the bad news. But notice this. They're only hard to be understood Save a man should inquire of the Lord. That's how you get the clarification. Just ask God about it. It's about him after all. But they, being hard in their hearts, therefore they did not look unto the Lord as they ought. I've been tempted to do this with my students. Giving them a test, just a couple of questions, but such impossible questions that they all know they're going to fail. And there's like frustration and there's anger. But it's so hard for them to understand. Their only hope would be come to the professor during office hours and ask your questions. Let's talk about it. In some ways, I wonder if Isaiah had that approach as a professor. Uh, If John the Revelator took that uh, approach himself. If God does that sometimes, I'm going to reveal things in such a way that the only hope you'll have to understand it is to come to me because what if the purpose of the test is not to master material, but rather go find a master to mentor you in it? What if it's not about coming to know about God? What if it's coming to know God and the only way to do it is to come unto him and have some experiences there during office hours? Okay. So, layman and Lemuel, what's the problem? We don't get it. Well, why not? Because... God doesn't tell us that kind of stuff. That's actually what they admit in a moment. In verse 4, Nephi, he's grieved because of the hardness of their hearts, just like he was back in chapter 7. He's not mad at them, just sad for them and sad for himself. It says that because of the things which I had seen and knew they must unavoidably come to pass because of the great wickedness of the children of men, it came to pass that I was overcome because of my afflictions. I considered mine afflictions were great above all because of the destruction of my people. For I had beheld their fall. I mean, I saw it. It's amazing that here's a guy who never complains about his own temporal circumstances and his adversity in the wilderness. But seeing what would come to pass among his posterity, that devastated Nephi. To the point... I mean, it's it's ironic because in some ways it's like, I know it must unavoidably come to pass. I got it from good authority. The angel showed me the future. And your posterity is going to wipe out mine. Nephi doesn't say that to Laman and Lemuel, but that's what he's thinking. It's devastating him right then. But then verse 6, it came to pass after I had received strength, which suggests he must have turned to the Lord to, get, to gain it like he had done earlier. But with that added strength, that greater grace, I spake unto my brethren, desiring to know of them the cause of their disputations. So here he sees them fighting. He's like, yep, there's a preview of coming destructions. It's this kind of... There's the mists of darkness right here in the valley floor surrounding Laman and Lemuel. surprised they know where to bicker because they can't even see each other through all this cloud of hate. And it's this cloud that's going to spread out until it becomes vapors of darkness and destroy people and there goes the end of my posterity at some point in the future. But what's he do? Despite all the devastation, he prays for strength and it comes and he says to them, brethren... What are you fighting about? Why? What are you wondering? And verse 7 to 9 is fascinating. They said, Behold, we cannot understand the words which our Father has spoken concerning the natural branches of the olive tree and also concerning the Gentiles, which should shock us to no end. That's the tree they're wondering about? They don't have questions about the tree of life yet, First and foremost in their minds was the, the olive tree. They were struck more by chapter 10 than chapter 8, which never happens. But Laman and Lemuel were so drawn to that. Can you guess why? I have a feeling they understood it better than, than they're letting on. Like, wait, if we're part of the house of Israel, if we're part of that tree, and dad said that the branches would be cut off, that's exactly what's happened to us. And yet, somehow, who's going to bring us back? A bunch of Gentiles? I don't even know what that is. Where are we going to meet them? And they're supposed to bring us back to Jerusalem? They're supposed to give us the land of our inheritance? They're going to restore the property that Laban stole? How's that that going to work? They are wondering about those concepts that Dad had taught them about. Well, Nephi responds, Well, have you inquired of the Lord? And they said, No, we have not. For the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us which again would be a self-fulfilling prophecy. You might have the right desires. I want to know these things. Hey, I did too. But your beliefs are off. I believe that God can manifest truth through the Spirit. And he's done it in the past. He'll do it in the future. So why not with me? If I diligently seek, then I'll find. I, I believe that. And it's what motivated me to go climb the mountain. Well, to get caught up there by the Spirit. You guys have the right goals but not the right beliefs, you still don't understand the dealings of that God who hath created you. You don't think he talks to his children. And no wonder, as a result, you won't talk to him. Man, silent treatment on both parts, that's got to be rough. Change your beliefs and your behaviors will follow. And you'll end up learning the things that you're looking for. Nephi explains that in verse 11. Do you not remember the things which the Lord hath said? If ye will not harden your hearts, that's one problem you guys have, ask me in faith, that's something you're lacking, believing ye shall receive, which you don't, with diligence in keeping my commandments, which has always been hard for you. If you could do it right, surely these things shall be made known unto you. But since you're not qualifying under those standards, I guess you're going to be left in darkness. Well, let me see what I can do to offer you some light. After all, even though I've seen the future and it looks unavoidable, I'm going to fight for a better future. Come what may, I love Nephi's faith in that. Instead of throwing in the towel and saying, I know how this game ends, I'm going to play it to the best of my ability. And I'm not going to, like I said, I'm not blaming Laman and Lemuel. It's my own posterity's pride that's the problem. In fact, maybe if I can convince Laman and Lemuel to come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and be saved, maybe they'll, the future of their posterity will be brighter than it otherwise would be. So he explains it. Uh, he does it for quite a few verses, but let me just show you one in verse 14. And this should remind us of the title page as well. Nephi says to his brothers, At that day shall the remnant of our seed know that they are of the house of Israel that they are the covenant people of the Lord. There's that word again. Then shall they know and come to the knowledge of their forefathers. Remember, that's on the title page. They'll know the great things that God has done for their fathers. Also to the knowledge of the gospel of their Redeemer. Remember, they're going to be convinced, Jew and Gentile, that Jesus is the Christ, which was ministered unto their fathers by him. Wherefore, they shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer and the very points of his doctrine. And why is that so important? Here's why. That they may know how to come unto him and be saved. That's the point of the gospel. It's directions home. It's so that you can be reassured and welcomed that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wants you to come unto him so he can save you. That's what dad was talking about this whole time. Believe me. I just had an extended lesson on it myself. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. I'll take several chapters worth of vision and condense it to a verse or two of prophecy. It's with that, that Laman and Lemuel shift gears a bit. Nephi talks a little bit more about true vines and true folds and people coming back and grafted in. It's going to be okay for our family. It's going to be okay for our posterity. It's not happening anytime soon. Leave Jerusalem mentally. like We've already left it physically. Okay? We, we, we ain't going back that way. But someday the Gentiles will receive a book from our posterity and that book will inspire them to come and share the book with the people that wrote it in the first place. Their descendants anyway. It will convince them that everything's going to be okay and they'll start coming home. You you all right about that, big brothers? But then what's interesting here, as he's talked about covenant and look for that word in chapter 15 as well, he quotes Isaiah to him. To them, which is interesting, that's in verse 20. I did rehearse unto them the words of Isaiah, who spake concerning the restoration of the Jews or the house of Israel. Now we see why Nephi would include Isaiah so often in his record. It's always there to confirm what dad said in chapter 10, what the angel showed him in 11, 12, 13, 14. It's Isaiah is here to confirm the gathering of Israel. That's always why Nephi is going to quote him. That's why Jesus quotes him as well. That's why Jacob quotes him. Keep that in mind when you get stuck in Isaiah chapters. But then Laman and Lemuel being satisfied with what dad must have meant in chapter 10. It's then and only then they have some questions about chapter 8. To me, again, it's so interesting that their questions would be about tree number 2, not tree number 1. But now that they're okay, it's like, okay, we've been cut off, but our posterity will be gathered back. Okay, I guess I'll have to wait with faith. Yikes. Okay, what about that other thing? what about that story I've been trying to avoid because we seem to be the villains in it because we never came and ate the fruit what's that all about anyway and that's when Nephi proceeds to give them the simplified watered down version of the panoramic historical lesson he just received by boiling it down to element equals object Well, tree love of God rod word of God is that making sense to you it's actually really interesting, because when Nephi explains it all, in verse 25, more than explain, he exhorts. I, Nephi, did exhort them to give heed unto the word of the Lord. In other words, hold to the rod, the iron rod, Tis strong and bright and true. And the iron rod is the word of God. It's the only thing that will get us to where we need to be. So I exhort you to give heed to it. In fact, how did he exhort them? This is amazing parenting. This is amazing teaching. This is amazing leading. I did exhort them with all the energies of my soul and with all the faculty which I possessed that they would give heed to the word of God and remember to keep his commandments always in all things. How's that for hand or hand the rod along? How's that for never losing hold I love the combination there. Again, first of all, with faith, despite the absolute perfect knowledge that his posterity is going to get wiped out by the posterity of his brothers. Fine. Let me pour my heart and soul into you too in hopes you can bless your posterity. I will exhort you with all the energies of my soul. Remember how dad did it? All the feelings of a tender parent. Well, this is a younger brother, but he's energetic. And with all the passion, all the energy he can, every attribute, but also every skill, all the faculty which I possessed. Makes me think about all your heart, might, mind, and strength serving God. He's going to ask for it all. He needs it. Or I should say we need it as we're working on each other the energy is of my soul. There's the spirit, there's the soul, but the faculties, that seems to be the intellect, the mind. I think there's a key contrary and some of your children will respond well to the energies of your soul. Other, others will be demanding some kind of more rational explanation and you better develop some of the faculties that will help you convince them or explain to them as you're exhorting. But when all is said and done, It's interesting Laman and Lemuel's response. I know the tree's the goal. Mm, Love of God. Okay, I guess that sounds all right. Word of God is how we get there. Mm. Continually hold fast to it. That sounds exhausting. Keep the commandments always in all things. No thanks. So they ask a follow-up question that's always interested me. Verse 26, they said unto me, What meaneth the river of water which our father saw? And remember, Dad talked about it, didn't know, not knowing that it was filthy, that its depths were the depths of hell. It was just a river, and it ran right alongside the path and the rod. So I honestly wonder if Layman and Lemmy are like, man, hand or hand the rod along seems like way too much work. What about the river option? Which direction does it flow? Does it flow toward the tree? Because if it's like a lazy river and we can just kind of grab an inner tube and just kind of float our way down the current and then just get off at the right moment, maybe that's what we grab the last little bit of the iron rod to pull ourselves up out of the pool and then we can eat some fruit, you know, riverside. And Nephi's like, no, 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 no. If Laman and Lemuel are seeking an easier way, there isn't one here. It is, it's a battle to get through the mist of darkness. It's a fight to ignore the mocking masses in the building. Believe me, I've seen it all. There's only one way to go, and it's probably uphill most of the the way. But it involves God's word. Hold to it. That's why he explains to his brothers, oh, it was filthy water. So yeah, that's not an option. You don't want that. That's in some ways even worse than the great and spacious building. That seems to be where the people in the building are trying to get people, to drown you there. So no, not an option. That's the funny thing about dad, though. Dad is such an incurable optimist. He didn't even realize or notice how filthy the water was. It became painfully clear to me in my visions. But not, not, not dear old dad. Maybe that's why he puts up with you guys. Because he has hope for your future. Maybe that's why I'm giving you my best shot because I have hope for you too. To me, it's an amazing thing to, to trust in the future. Trust that God knows what he's doing and has put everything in place whereby he can keep his eternal covenants to make sure every one of his children can come back home for you who are worrying about your own layman's and lemules, for you who feel that they have been swept up by water they didn't know was so filthy or have been caught hold of by those in the great and spacious building hold out hope the story ends well and if we can simply be armed with the power of God in great glory if we can approach our prodigals with all the energies of our soul and all the faculties that we possess or can develop with practice, then it's worth continuing the exhortation and inviting people to come unto a God who wants to connect with them. I'm, I'm grateful for that reality. Well, we end then with our customary review. Some phrases that we've talked about already, others that I invite you to ponder yourself. Go write a church talk about this. But from chapters 10, the end of it, through 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. How's this by way of review? I was desirous that I might see and hear and know. The Holy Ghost, which is the gift of God unto all those who diligently seek him. For he that diligently seeketh shall find, and the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto them. As I sat pondering in mine heart, I was caught away in the spirit of the Lord. I believe all the words of my Father. Blessed art thou, because thou believest in the Son of the Most High God. Knowest thou the condescension of God? I know that he loveth his children, Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. He went forth ministering unto the people in power and great glory. The house of Israel hath gathered together to fight against the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Because of their faith in the Lamb of God, their garments are made white in his blood. Knowest thou the meaning of the book? They have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord. I will bring forth unto them in mine own time much of my gospel, which shall be plain and precious. And in them shall be written my gospel, saith the Lamb, and my rock and my salvation. And blessed are they who shall seek to bring forth my Zion at that day. Whoso shall publish peace, yea, tidings of great joy, how beautiful upon the mountains shall they be. These last records shall establish the truth of the first. The Lamb of God is the Son of the Eternal Father and the Savior of the world. And all men must come unto him or they cannot be saved. There is one God and one shepherd over all the earth. I will work a great and a marvelous work among the children of men. Rememberest thou the covenants of the Father unto the house of Israel? Behold, there are saved two churches only. They were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. The work of the Father shall commence in preparing the way for the fulfilling of his covenants. Have ye inquired of the Lord Ask me in faith, believing that ye shall receive, with diligence in keeping my commandments, that they may know how to come unto him and be saved, their everlasting God, their rock and their salvation. Whoso would hearken unto the word of God and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish. I did exhort them with all the energies of my soul and with all the faculty which I possessed, remember to keep his commandments always in all things so much was his mind swallowed up in other things that tree of life whose fruit is most precious and most desirable above all other fruits yea, it is the greatest of all the gifts of God and that's a gift he's trying to give us he grew up as a tender plant and became a tree of life. He extended his arm of mercy and it turned into an iron rod to help us home. He is the path, the way, the truth, and the life. He's the good shepherd and he's shepherding us home. I am grateful for him. I am grateful his light can shine even through mists of darkness. I'm grateful his voice can be heard above the mocking laughter of those in the great and spacious building. The rest of our time in the Book of Mormon will be spent in the valley of decision, deciding which side we're on and which direction we'll go. I pray that we can have not only an open heart, but maybe even more importantly, an open mouth Not just to share the truth, but rather to take something in. Namely, the fruit of the tree of life. I invite us, myself included, to partake, to eat, to feast. Knowing that that fruit is the most desirable of any fruit on earth.